and now an enchanting flute-like song comes from the woodland beyond. It is a wood thrush, and it sings in measured phrases, as though it had all the time in the world, and it invited one to contemplation, something like this. Would you live with me? Away high in a tree? I'll come right down and see. Hey, Dave. Hey, Mike. Welcome back to Bird Nerd. It's been a little bit. It's been a while. Um, but, you know, we're all about quality over quantity here at Bird Nerd, so this week's guest is out of control awesome. I loved him. Um, Still do. Yeah. We, we had, like, the best time, right? I mean, we got to hang out at the zoo for work. Yeah, it was crazy. And it was in the afternoon and no one was there. It felt like a private tour. It was a private tour. We got a private tour from the bird curator of the Philadelphia Zoo, Ian Gehrig. It's an all-star. Yeah, all-star guest. Um, couldn't be more pleased um, and excited to share it with people. So I just kind of want to get right into it. Yeah, yeah. A quick preface about the Guam Kingfisher and the Guam Rail, who are the stars of our episode. They are both native to the island of Guam, or were originally. They're actually... Um, technically extinct from the wild yeah and i mean they they were thriving like my understanding was there was like it was just like an entire sanctuary of of these birds right you know it was it wasn't just you know no natural predators right right and then came along a unnatural predator the brown tree snake and completely disrupted their lives it's almost like a fairy tale how the brown tree snakes showed up. Uh, World War II rolls around, and yeah. uh, battleships in their hulls are carrying water from other locations. Um, and uh, when they discharged that water at the port of Guam, uh, out came all these brown snakes. Or maybe just a couple or something, yeah. but no one really knows the true story behind uh, how these snakes got here. But you can trace it right to World War II. Yeah, I, I even heard that it was possible that they got caught in landing gear of an airplane. Whoa. And yeah, that's how they got on. That is wild. Yeah. You gotta you gotta watch out for snakes. Yeah, yeah. Kind of remind me of that like Indiana Jones, like when he discovers the snake in the airplane, you <laughs> yeah, know. Totally. <laughs> he hates snakes. Yeah, he does. And maybe that's how it happened. Yeah. But thanks to the beautiful work of Ian Gehrig and his team at the Philadelphia Zoo. Uh, they're revitalizing these populations. Let's hear about uh, how Ian got into this great work and how the project is going to revitalize the Guam Kingfisher and the Guam Rail. Cool, I'm psyched. Me too. Uh, my name is Ian Gehrig. I'm curator of birds and reptiles and amphibians at the Philadelphia Zoo. Oh, I have so many questions about that. Uh-oh. Please continue. <laughs> uh, I started at the zoo about two and a half years ago. Uh, originally from Connecticut. I've been a bird guy my entire life. It started with my father who raises and shows exhibition chickens. Oh. Yeah. So um, I spent my early life uh, at chicken shows and other poultry-related festivities. You were, you were fast-tracked. Uh, I was. I was. My parents joked that I wasn't born, I was hatched. Oh my gosh, this is awesome. A little cheesy, I know, but uh, my whole life has been thinking about birds. Um, 
So I was, I was fortunate to be able to volunteer uh, and then later work at waterfowl propagation facilities. Um, and that has been my primary interest is, is waterfowl, uh, the ducks, geese, and swans. So a lot of people ask, why not birds of prey? Or, you know, the penguins are all these really kind of very popular birds. But I, I felt like ducks were underappreciated. Um, well, you started with the chicken, which is maybe the everyman's. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, and you sort of took that sort of uh, blue-collar approach to mm-hmm. bird experting. Is that, is sure. that an accurate no, it's, it's good. That's a good start. Yeah. And I love them all. I mean, I, I shouldn't say just ducks. but I grew up, my, my parents were in eaters in the backyard. Yeah. But, but my personal, you know, entrance into the world of birds is just like you're saying, the charismatic birds of prey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm like, I feel like I'm meeting... Uh, you know, someone who figured it out really early, and I'm like, I'm like, oh, I wish I had the secret like you did, <laughs> something uh, like that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, um, I wanna, uh, I just wanna like get a little bit of um, feeling for your love of birds and your, mm-hmm. your just personal relationship with mm-hmm. birds over the years. I um, I've always admired birds for the same thing that everyone else admires birds for. So this ability to fly of course but also this ability to disappear and to come and go and the thought of migrations and to see different environments throughout the year and the challenges that we have with travel uh, and to think about what you know a 20 gram bird might experience throughout that process so that's that kind of wow um, and mystique has always captivated me Um, so I, i i think in a way, waterfowl, uh, again, to go back to ducks and why ducks, um, have major, major migratory routes uh, that we know quite well. We call them flyways. Uh, but we have a bird that may nest in the high Arctic and then migrate down to the Baja Peninsula or even further. Um, and the shorebirds that do that and the terns and you know all of these um, long-distance migrants are particularly remarkable to me. The sense of scale that a, a bird mm-hmm. uh, traverses and encompasses not only mm-hmm. throughout time but ge- geographically, the, they are a, a key to you know understanding our own place. They uh, certainly on this are. Earth. And, uh, yeah, and so, I, what's some insights that you pull from from ducks specifically in terms of like, <laughs> uh, yeah, just like that? I don't know. Insights. These are, these are far-reaching questions. Yeah, <laughs> that's very we'll, deep. We'll get back to the, well, to the practical uh, uh, questions after this. I would say, if we're sticking with ducks, I would say that ducks are an important indicator species for wetland health. So uh, they're really uh, towards the top of the food chain, and if you have healthy populations of waterfowl, um, you have healthy populations of invertebrates, uh, aquatic plants, uh, fish, uh, muskrats, a variety of different species, um, at least locally. Uh, And I also think that any conservation work for waterfowl benefits an array of species. So your migratory shorebirds, your horseshoe crabs, your um, whooping cranes, whatever it might be. So I, I, again, I don't want to make this whole discussion about ducks, but I, I think that there, there's a lot of reasons why that particular group has captivated me. I see its interconnection. Yeah. And, and uh, so I'll just segue from that to... Uh, your uh, expertise and also amphibians and reptiles. So <laughs> I wouldn't call it expertise okay, quite but, yet. But, but that's, you're pursuing that? So yes, that, yes. Okay. so I've recently become curator of reptiles and amphibians. So I'm, Here at the zoo? Yeah, and what's Lovely. really exciting to me is that 
here I am as a professional in the field uh, and really being able to start, certainly not at square one, but uh, take a step back and learn more of the basics of, of a new um, type of animal husbandry. So good animal care is good animal care, and the, the basics are always there. Uh, but to really learn the ins and outs of these particular species and groups of animals is really fun. Um, and going back to the books and talking to keepers who have 30 plus years of experience, it's awesome. Uh, because sometimes you, you lose that when you've been in birds for so long. You, of course, start to go with what you know. Uh, I think it's easy for all of us to fall into a rut. Not that we're in a rut here, but um, the, the birds knowing the birds and then being put into some spot that you don't know is, is fun again. Um, the reason I, uh, it piqued my interest so strongly is uh, we're here um, partially on behalf of the Guam Rail and the Guam Kingfisher mm -hmm. and as a simultaneous ornithologist and becoming herpetologist, <laughs> I, I see a, a beautiful, uh, I don't know, there's so much allegory in the story of the Guam Kingfisher. It yes. almost feels like fable. It almost feels like a children's story mm -hmm. waiting to be written or something like this. And then uh, you uh, not only encounter the story, work with the story, but then kind of integrate it into your own professionalism mm -hmm. by becoming uh, not a hater of snakes, but uh, actually an, an expert and a cultivator mm -hmm. of, mm -hmm. uh, of animal husbandry across these. Well, uh, particularly with Guam rails and Guam kingfishers, you can't blame the tree snakes. You know, it's not like they would intentionally. You tell, would you tell the listeners the story of the, of the brown tree snake coming to Guam? Just sure. So it's not completely uh, certain where the brown tree snakes came from. So they're a pretty wide range across. Southeast Asia, uh, Australasia, uh, but they ended up on Guam, um, likely during World War II, on some vessel. And what the brown tree snake found when it got to Guam was all the food in the world, very few predators, and the population exploded. Uh, it met birds that were naive to predators like snakes, and it decimated their populations uh, within 40 to 50 years. And what we saw was the Guam rail and the Guam kingfisher um, go extinct uh, in that short of time. And fortunately, there was some forward-thinking aviculturists um, in the zoo field that said, you know, hey, we need to do something about this. Um, they were able to collect some of those few remaining birds and learn about their natural history. So studying them in the wild and then also the first few birds in, in zoos to determine what these birds need to survive. Uh, and luckily that was figured out. Um, those birds started breeding, and now our role is to maintain those birds um, in good health, in good genetic diversity, uh, in good behavioral abilities, so making sure these birds can still hunt lizards, uh, make sure they can still nest naturally and raise their own young, um, so that hopefully, knock on wood, when the time comes, uh, we have healthy birds, not only physically but genetically to go back to Guam. How, in other ways, other than the extinction of these species, how, mm -hmm. how has the island of Guam sort of been affected by this? Uh, in summary, I know this isn't you know, necessarily... Well, uh, as you know, birds uh, transfer seeds. They can uh, certainly impact um, pest populations um, and ensure that other species have what they need to survive um, by reducing numbers of 
prey animals that may be impacting their other food sources. Um, usually in island ecosystems there are some pretty intricate webs uh, and we have certainly disassembled some of that web on Guam. Uh, and there are likely how ways that these kingfishers and rails are connected to the ecosystem that we don't even fully understand. Uh, we didn't really have an opportunity to study it. It was only a, a rescue mission at, at the end of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so what does it mean to be a you know, pioneer in this uh, rehabilitation effort that has seen uh, the population go from zero in the wild to um, somewhere in the 200, 150 to 200 across right, the nation? Uh, it, it's, daunting. Of, it's daunting. It's daunting. It, it feels certainly daunting. daunting. I'm not even involved. Um, we, we don't take it lightly. Yeah, it's important um, and, you know, I think of it as we are stewards of species that uh, our role is to, to continue on through my generation, uh, make sure that we're doing everything we can, again, to create a, a maintain a healthy bird. Um, just to have them is only the first step. Um, and ensure that future generations don't shake their head and say, man, they really dropped the ball on this. Uh, ensure that someday we have both these Guam endemics back on Guam. Uh, they're both uh, very idiosyncratic, beautiful birds in their own right. Uh, just uh, my own kind of feeling from a kingfisher is it's um, like uh, adorable uh, proportionality. Like that's what strikes me first is the giant head and the <laughs> yeah, giant they're all bill and then the tiny beak little and head. Body. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, almost like a uh, like an anime version of itself. Yeah, mm -hmm. there it is. Um, it's kingfishers, yeah. and then uh, yeah, I guess that's across the board with kingfishers, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and the rail are, are, are very beautiful, speckled mm -hmm. in a in a very distinct way underneath their wings. Mm -hmm. um, they move very distinctly, and they certainly use that plumage um, in their displays. So how, how do they do that? One of their alarm displays and a, a similar courtship display actually flashes the wings up, which accentuates uh, the visibility of those that brown and, and black barring on the sides. Um, so that's been really um, fun to observe is when they interact with each other, how they actually use the plumage that we admire um, to communicate. So not a very vocal bird, uh, but a lot of um, physical cues. Yeah. Um, so can, can we talk a little bit about like uh, being around birds and uh, the sense of intelligence that you uh, feel and sense through them? Cause what I hear from communicating with feather movements is high intelligence and mm -hmm. subtlety and stuff. Mm -hmm. Could you just anecdotally or...? Sure, I think uh, all animals are often discounted uh, in their intelligence. And I think that um, birds have a lot of innate abilities um, that make me go wow all the time. I mean, it's. Um, it's remarkable to see what is hardwired into them, but also what we can teach them. So through training and behavioral husbandry, recall, stationing, uh, a variety of things that these birds are able to pick up, um, just in, in simple, simple management, um, that is pretty remarkable that they can do those things and demonstrate that they pick things up very quickly. So impressive, and, and we're seeing all these different characters and expressions mm -hmm. of different kinds of intelligence. Mm -hmm. Just walking through this one mm -hmm. uh, corridor, we uh, we walked into uh, the African savanna uh, exhibit, and uh, you were telling us how um, 
how uh, ex- excuse me the uh, the, gra- the grouse um, the guinea fowl the vulturing guinea, guinea fowl the yeah. guinea fowl is uh, an avid nest builder and is, pick- is that the one? that was the hammer cops okay yes. I'm sorry I'm, yes. I'm, I'm getting yep. confused so in the African savanna exhibit the hammer cops am I saying that right yep um, are uh, avidly picking up anything that's left around yes. and utilizing it. Yes, they are. For uh, utilitarian, yeah, just implementing it into mm-hmm. nest building or, mm-hmm. or just kind of... Mm-hmm. Birds are very resourceful. Yeah. The environment is always changing. Uh, and not only do they show intelligence by reacting and adapting to their environments, uh, but also, yeah, as I was mentioning, we have some stellar bird trainers on our team. Uh, and our keepers are, are really good at understanding the natural history of the birds and using that um, in our zoo setting. So encouraging foraging in natural ways and the puzzles that that involves and having the birds figure those out. And it's every day, it's like, wow, I, I can't believe they got it that quickly. Um, you're you're trying to step in to the feathers of these birds. <laughs> yeah, we, we live a productive life with them. Sure, they've gotten into my head and I want to get back into theirs. I love that. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about working at the zoo and your team. Yeah. So we have a team of nine in this building. Um, we have keepers here that have been doing bird work for 20 plus years uh, and some that have only been in it for a few. Uh, and it's really exciting to have a group of people in this building that are super passionate about birds. Uh, the amount of knowledge and experience and expertise that uh, this team has is really impressive. Uh, and the work they put in every day, day in and day out, um, to make sure these birds have everything uh, and then some. It's really, really great. It's a great job. It's, um, every day is different. It's never boring. Um, like working with any live animal, there's highs and lows. Um, but we've got a great team and we help each other on both. Um, do, do you have um, a background in research before getting uh, in, uh, in, involved here at the zoo? Or? I have some. Um, my interests before coming to the zoo were in wildlife management um, and habitat management, uh, and then also in bird development. Okay. So my, Was that in Connecticut? It was in Connecticut, but also here in Pennsylvania. Uh, my master's degree had a thesis in avian growth and development. Uh, which was really a great project. Uh, and then I, uh, my personal interest is in um, improving animal husbandry and making sure we're doing the best we can for birds under our care. So I do a lot of writing to that regard. Um, yeah. It's, um, tell me about that. Um, what, are, uh, what are some of the things that you write about, some of the issues that you mm-hmm. tackle? So I write about um, quite a few topics relating to husbandry, uh, particularly rearing young birds. So collectively we've learned a lot about how to keep birds happy and healthy, but when it comes to propagating birds, there can be a lot of challenges. So the birds can do it quite well, but it takes a lot for us to, again, get inside a bird's head, especially a hatchling's head, and figure out what does it need to eat, how often, how do we stimulate it to defecate, all of these kind of not so glorious jobs that we have to do as a mother or father bird Uh, and and making sure that we share that knowledge so that we continue to improve animal care uh, and make sure that these chicks that we're raising that could be the next generation of Guam rails or Guam kingfishers uh, are reared successfully and become part of these sustainability programs. I think that's that's important. I think that's one of the big roles we can have is to continue to educate 
it sounds like such a crucial uh, component to the effectiveness of mm -hmm. conservation. You can uh, save and propagate these species all, all you want, but when it comes down to it, what we what we want to see is them thrive and be re-enchanted. Absolutely, that is the ultimate angle. Um, if, if you're not uh, combining the uh, genetics of these birds with a, an environment that mm -hmm. uh, will mm -hmm. uh, stimulate them, right? Mm -hmm. and, and cause the kinds of learning mm -hmm. uh, that needs to take place. And that's, that's a big part of what we do too, is record keeping and genetic management. So there's actually a population management program for both of these species. So we know more about the lineage of these birds than I know about my own lineage. Uh, and that's really important because we're looking at long-term sustainability. Um, there is genetic matching. We swap birds with zoos all over the country uh, and play matchmaker with a lot of them um, to make sure that these are long-term sustainable programs. That's fascinating. Yeah, Do you have um, the entire genome sequence? Or? We don't sequence no. genomes okay. <laughs> at this point. Uh, we may get there, but it's a lot of tracking lineage over multiple generations okay. to keep these as genetically distinct as possible. We talk about mean kinship, we talk about population kinship. Um, all of those records um, go into making these matches. So for example, the, just this year, some of the chicks that were raised at Philadelphia have gone to Long Beach Aquarium, Denver Zoo, uh, San Diego Zoo, Cincinnati Zoo, we have another bird going to Houston. So we, it's, it's nice to know that these chicks that have the blood, sweat, and tears of the keeper team have moved on to other facilities to be part of this program to keep these birds going. Uh, and there's plans in the future to actually send birds back to Guam to be part of the breeding program there. So that's huge for us. Yeah, I love that. That's really exciting. Um, is the these are Guam kingfishers, Guam rails. These, do you know that their genetic lineage leads to the island of Guam? Yes. It does? Yes. So they were, uh, as far back as we can tell, originally from this island mm -hmm. that had no snakes on it. Correct. The only snake it had was a blind snake, mm -hmm. something like that, mm -hmm. right? And that didn't Which was not a bird predator. Right. Yep. That's fascinating. It's, it's amazing, and it shows that, you know, what thoughtless introductions of, there's the hornbills, uh, what thoughtless introductions of invasive species can do. So you can see the artificial rainfall system is running right now. Uh, and we tried to replicate that in the back of house areas as well so that the birds can interact with the rain should they choose. But that often gets them quite excited. Yeah, that's a good reaction. Yes. Yep. Yep. They're announcing that it's raining. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like our local radar service. Yeah. Uh, and and fly through it. The the kinds of uh, I mean, these guys are like a power couple. They are. They're like. They're doing they have, all the right things. They got all this chemistry. Mm -hmm. They're doing this uh, back and forth calling. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Yeah. There's a. They, at work here. These guys are really fun to stop and watch because there's all sorts of social interaction going on. Uh, and if you think about a species that has a pair bond that could last for 20 to 30 years, you really want to cement that relationship. Um, so there's the bill touching, there's unison calling. Uh, the male often will take food from a keeper and then immediately fly to his mate and offer it to her. It's very sweet. Don't those calls just sound exactly like velociraptors in Jurassic Park? Yeah. Yeah, the, the arms. I mean, the arms. The hair on my arms. 
<laughs> Stood straight up when I heard those, those squawks. Uh, they're amazing, man. Uh, they're long, limbering legs and the way they like hop around and yeah, like primates, like very, very primate-like. Yeah, um, that was just such a cool experience. Uh, I love the the way they interjected in our conversation. We just wanted to take an opportunity to thank the Philadelphia Zoo for this wonderful opportunity to hang out with Ian for the afternoon. If you're interested in becoming a member, head over to philadelphiazoo.org and see what it's all about. Sponsor a bird, sponsor another animal. Uh, get connected. Sounds good. I'm already a member, so, you know. Nice, Dave. I don't have to do anything. That's awesome. Yeah. Uh, it, you go there with your daughter sometimes. I do. And you told me the most hilarious story that um, she, she's afraid of the bear exhibit? She, the bear exhibits. Well, she doesn't admit it. She, right. So, like, when did this start? I, I, I think it started when she was, like, three. And, you know, I was like, let's go to the bear exhibit. And she's like, no, I don't want to. It's like, all right, we'll, we'll go back another time. And every time there's, like, a reason not to go to the bear exhibit. Interesting. And this is well, well before the, rev- the Revenant. So right, which you didn't allow your little daughter to see. No, right? why would I let her see that? Right. You... <laughs> Maybe like internet memes got to her or something. Is that what you're concerned about? I, I think you know there might be something there where you know bears are in our psyche, you yeah. know, and it, it's just those teeth, the the, the ferocious growls, you know. It... There's something unsettling about a bear. It just looks at looks through you. It looks like into your meat possibility. Yes. Yeah. Like, it looks, he's like, you look like a sandwich. Right. You know? Very much. bears ate sandwiches. Bears hate sandwiches? If, if bears ate sandwiches. Oh. They, oh. Would, they would think we look like, maybe they think we look like a delicious blueberry bush. Mm. Or a caribou without antlers and no hair. Interesting. So what kind of bear sandwich would you be? I would definitely be a blueberry caribou sandwich. Huh. Anyway, Ada would probably be upset that I brought this up, but I found it to be just like a really sweet, adorable story knowing her, you know, and I hope she doesn't find this embarrassing that we shared the bear story. I think we all should be afraid of bears if I'm going to take a step back and think about it. That's true. That's probably actually really good advice. You know? So let's all listen to Ada's advice and be afraid of bears. And let's get back to the Talk about, like, the anthropomorphization <laughs> of birds and how, like... It's, it's hard not to. It's really hard not to. And, and especially with a larger bird such as these, mm-hmm. like, it's hard to not mm-hmm. impress these, yeah, chimpanzee-like qualities mm-hmm. that we kind of pick up and... Well, I think, uh, is I think hard, we are... Is that a hard thing to, like, get people to care about smaller birds, like a guan kingfisher? That's where I was going. I think in general, uh, we see in the zoo field that sometimes it is a challenge to get people excited about the smaller animals. Um, but I think it's with good storytelling, um, with making those strong connections to the animals, so showing their natural behaviors, telling their natural history stories, I mean, th- those are the things that, that really make that bridge. Um, and I think that's what smart exhibit design, I think that's what good graphics, I think that's what good interpretation do, is they move beyond the, the shock and awe of the, the, the big animals uh, unless you kind of dive into the, the details of maybe those that you didn't first catch on your first time to visit. Yeah, yeah I, I want to I hear about like your... Um, 
I, I, I guess you can't pick a favorite exhibit. That, that would be cool. Um, I can say that in my time here, one of the exhibits I'm most proud of, uh, I have a few of them actually, but um, is our Wings of Asia exhibit. So it's a, it's a newer uh, mixed species exhibit. So anytime you, you add multiple species into one enclosure, not only do you have all the specific needs of species X, but how is species X going to interact with species Y and Z and, and still somehow create a, an exhibit that is uh, attractive and interesting to guests uh, once you've addressed all of the, the animal um, concerns. So that, that was a really fun build to look at what winter hardy species can we bring in uh, that are from an Asian um, country that could be part of an interactive experience. So people can actually go in there, guests can go in and feed uh, these birds and really get up close and personal with, with birds they may not see anywhere else. Um, so that's been really exciting. We've redone our bald eagle exhibit um, to give those birds more space and really highlight um, some of the uh, amazing adaptations of those birds, like these big grasping feet. Uh, so seeing those birds at different levels. And then most recently, uh, we uh, created a new exhibit for our penguins. We're calling that Penguin Point. Uh, and that has been tremendous. Uh, so new opportunities to see those birds underwater from different levels. Uh, and not only are guests enjoying it, but even more importantly, the birds are having a blast. Uh, penguins don't smile, but if they could, uh, they're really enjoying the interaction with guests, uh, the deeper water. Yeah, it's, it's really fun to, to see those changes. That's great. And those are South American penguins? Or yes, we have Humboldt penguins, Humboldt. Uh, which are from mainland South America, Peru through Chile. Those are tropical climates, or are they... Yeah, there's a temperate penguin. Yeah, yep. yeah really, um, it's always changing. I think that's the fun of the job. It's yeah. seasonal, it's daily, it's, you know, down to the minute there's changes. It's, it's just hit me now. It's like, you're world-building here. Um, you're importing lands and, and plants from all over the world. You're... Um, try, you're Simulating these environments and stimulus and uh, taking care of these birds in a in a wild way. It's like uh, it's such a cool intersection of uh, biology and ecology and art uh, in the way that you design these to be interactive for people. Well, what really excites me is the fact that over a million people come through our doors every year. And we're able to share our passion and tell the stories of these animals that they've likely never heard of before they got here. Um, and, you know, in the back of my head, I always think that there's probably another me on a field trip, maybe once a month, maybe once a day, who comes through and says, wow, you know, this has changed my life. I, I want to be a bird guy now or a bird girl. Um, and it's... Uh, that's really exciting to me too. The, the conservation is wonderful and is always interesting, but I'm equally excited about what we're doing in education. This is such an educational space to be able to interact at this level. There's nothing like it. Did you have an opportunity to come to a zoo like this when you were? A I kid? did. I did. Um, my parents were very uh, patient with my zoo requests. Um, I was that odd kid that ran by the elephants and the tigers and wanted to go look at the finches or whatever it might be. So 
uh, like I said, this has been a lifelong interest. But uh, yeah, our our zoos were Beardsley and Bronx, uh, and and some of the northeastern zoos, Boston. Uh, so they used to take me quite a bit at my pleading. Yeah, yeah, it was fun. So why fishes? Were you like, were you like into Darwin? Like, is that? Yeah, it's just you know something about feathered jewels to me. You know, they're 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 beautiful. Um, and again, that allure of the mystique of where do you go? Um, even for our chickadees in our bird feeder, even the robins in our yard, you know, a lot of people think they migrate. No, they're still here. They're just, they've changed their habits for the winter months. It's, um, it's pretty remarkable. I think the adaptability of birds is uh, simultaneously with their sensitivity. As you mentioned, many birds can be indicator species. Um, uh, the story of a bird seems to be change. And, uh, and I can, think we're can you talk about that? Uh, just in terms of being a conservationist, but also like un- understanding uh, natural selection and, and these kinds of things. Well, there are certain ecological ecological challenges. That was not a bird, I heard. Uh, we, we have uh, the, the team back there. We're building a, a stone wall. Yes. Right for the yes. walkway. So yes. probably that. Uh, there, are, there are ecological challenges that birds have adapted to, and it's amazing to learn about them. I think one of the concerning things to me is that humans have created challenges that, even as adaptable as birds are, uh, they're coming very quickly now. So climate change, habitat loss, window strikes, all of the, the challenges that birds have now, um, we need to be very careful uh, to make sure that we're monitoring even the populations of common species uh, to make sure that our impacts uh, are not sending them to a negative um, population spiral. And today's case study of Guam, you can, you can, <laughs> yeah. you can, you can see the devastating effects of removing these couple you birds certainly from, can. from the environment. You certainly can. And, and fortunately, in those cases, we were able to do something about it before it was too late. But, um, you know, it, it requires vigilance and monitoring um, and, and some pretty conscientious planning. Well, I don't, I don't feel, like, uh, hopeless talking to you. I, don't I, I, I feel like here at the Philadelphia Zoo, you're exporting these uh, um, genetically paired um, mates across the country. Mm-hmm. You have uh, a bunch back here. Mm-hmm. Um, how many Guam kingfishers do you have? So right now we have 11 Guam kingfishers. And we have six Guam rails. So percentage-wise, that's pretty high yeah, in pretty terms good. of the, the yeah. total. Yeah. We're, uh, we're actively breeding both species. Um, the bird team here uh, has lots of expertise in breeding both. Um, lots of um, experience hand-rearing them, which is certainly challenging. So a blind, helpless baby kingfisher uh, requires a lot of different care than a um, precocial Guam rail chick, so they hatch with their eyes open and are able to walk around and feed themselves uh, within a day or so. So every species here, including those two, has a different care requirement as a chick. Um, so making sure that we know all those and are be able, being able to be successful in propagating them is pretty important. Um, so you know we're, we're involved in it quite actively. Uh, last year we raised 10 Guam rail chicks. I'm sorry, Guam kingfishers. Um, and, and to raise 10 Guam kingfisher chicks was a huge achievement, not only for us, but for the population. 
Uh, and now to see those birds being distributed to other zoos where they can continue to grow the population is huge uh, and really fulfilling for us um, in the bird department. It's, do you know how many birds originally were like, you know, like where did the population start? Like, so, you know, they were like basically extinct, right? Mm-hmm. And then somebody decided, oh, I have like at least two birds here. Mm-hmm. Like, do you know how many, was it two, was it four, was it six? To As far as what the initial population yeah. that came into zoos was? Right, right. I believe, don't quote me on this, but it was about 20 birds uh, with Guam rails. And in the 20s for Guam kingfishers. From there, you yes. it, uh, and that's where the important importance of genetic management comes in. You've got some pretty small populations, which is common in all island uh, species, uh, but to ensure that that really does not create a bottleneck somewhere uh, that we can't recover from. Yeah. So how do you how do, so you, you learn you learn from that island population, right? Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to have too many of the same genetics. Mm-hmm. Like is that where you like learn from to like able to so able to, we know uh, the the lineage of every one of those birds. So those birds that first came out of the wild into the zoo population, the assurance population, those birds all had very very detailed records. So as those birds started to reproduce, we started to keep those records and look at kinship there. So we think about founder animals versus first and second and third and fourth and fifth generations, making sure that we're maintaining that kinship um, at as low a level as possible. So in any island population, there's certainly mixing, uh, but we maintain that as um, low level as we can. Yep. That's, that's integral to maintaining the integrity <laughs> yeah. of the DNA. Not to be redundant. <laughs> Makes sense to me. Oops. Um, uh, so, are, are you, uh, in terms of your research, you were, you're managing habitat mm-hmm. and wild, and mm-hmm. uh, that, that seems like you're just right at home here, uh, uh, like restoring habitats. It's a cool direct link. It, it may seem a little cliche, but it, that think globally, act locally concept um, really does ring true to me. I think that the habitats in our own backyard require a lot of attention with encroachment, habitat degradation, invasive species, um, restoration of species, for example, eastern bluebirds, North American wood ducks, these cavity nesting species that have come back since we've really started to restore habitat um, in our own backyard. That's important, and if we can start there, it's very easy to show and illustrate how that successful effort can go further afield. Um, so I've really always kind of embraced that concept as cheesy as it may seem. It's not cheesy because uh, all it took was 20 uh, birds on an entire island to, uh, to maintain, you know, and if, if you make that small impact in your backyard, yeah. Where you save one pair, yep. the kind of cascade and exponential effect yep. of that, the genetic, genetic variation, mm-hmm. the uh, adaptability of the species is all helped by that, right? And it, and it also goes back to efforts towards conserving bluebirds, let's say, impacts a whole variety of other species. And I think to loop back around, that's the beauty of birds, is that because they use so many diverse habitats, any efforts to conserve them is going to be win-win for a lot of other species. So cool. um, 
it's an exciting place. It's, uh, it's an exciting time to be at the zoo, and it's certainly an exciting place within the zoo. I agree. Yeah, I mean, as a Philadelphian, I, I feel like, you know, the Philadelphia Zoo is kind of like a leader. Mm-hmm. I mean, is, would you say that's accurate? Absolutely. It's actually uh, quite intimidating at times to read back uh, through uh, the activities and knowledge of former curators. So it's a real honor to be part of that line. Uh, and, and really maintain Philadelphia's status as, uh, as a major uh, zoo institution. Yeah, I love the tradition of naturalists here in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, are, there, are there some that you look up to personally, or that you uh, grew up reading or something like that? Quite a few of them. Of course. Uh, but really two of the big ones to me are um, Griswold. So Gus Griswold, who was here uh, as bird curator. Um, did incredible things, uh, really learning about diets and behavior and husbandry um, back when that was not so much of uh, the interest. Birds were almost treated like cut flowers. Yes. Brought some in, those didn't make it, get some more. Um, so Gus was really um, kind of a pioneer in that. Uh, and then on the reptile side, I'm learning uh, very much uh, about Roger Conan and Roger's work here at the zoo in improving husbandry, not only for reptiles, but the entire zoo collection of animals. Uh, so really some, some big shoes to fill coming in behind uh, these guys uh, who have had major, major careers here uh, and improved the lives of so many animals. I think the kids coming here to learn as well as the birds living here are in good hands. I think uh, I trust you. you. I would trust Thank you, you with, uh, with my animal husband. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I love the, I love your thoughtful consideration. Uh, listeners can't can't see the kindness in your eyes, but you just got this like vibe that you're like you really care, man. You're not uh, faking it. <laughs> no, as, like I said, I, I grew up around birds, and I, I can't think of doing anything else. Um, it's been it's been a fantastic journey, and looking forward to what happens going forward. And what happens going forward is we got a tour of some of the exhibits of the zoo. We uh, left the atrium with Ian and we did a little walking tour. So we're we're actually going to release this as a two-part episode where we have our little walking tour where we talk about uh, eagles and owls and penguins and uh, African storks, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. You you were there. Do you remember? (laughs) Yeah, um, I think we peacocks. We talked a little bit about peacocks. Yeah, and uh, I don't remember what else we talked about. Yeah, uh, vultures. Oh yeah, yeah, big guys. Mm-hmm. Um, that maybe was a- some hawks. I think we talked a little bit about hawks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it, it will, you'll have to listen to the episode too, Dave. What was uh, what was that area that we visited that we actually got to feed? The That's birds? the part that I cut out. What? Wings of Asia. Why? Because remember there was oh, a yeah. cricket in the bush? There was a cricket in the bush. It was too annoying to listen to. <laughs> Damn cricket. <laughs> this is really what the listeners want. They want the behind-the-scenes scoop of what they can't hear. That's right. <laughs> Should we talk about holding these grubs? And, and, and uh, who were we feeding? Um, we were feeding a, a Chinese pheasant. Is that right? Yeah. Some kind of pheasant. Whatever it was, it was extremely athletic. Um, And as well as the azul magpie Mm. was in there. Um, A bleeding heart dove. Oh, yeah. 
Those it was beautiful. Cool. Yeah. It's amazing space. Like it's it's really I feel like it, it's kind of changing the way we think about zoos mm-hmm. and that, you know, zoos are a lot of times the animals are behind cages or you know, in exhibits that you can't interact with and this was a truly interactive space where you got to feed the birds and you know, be right up close to them and you know, and, and you can't uh describe the plumage. You can't uh really understand it until you get that close to it. A certain iridescence reveals itself, certain very subtle pad- patterning. Um, it was super exciting. And, and yeah, such a fun way to connect with an animal that doesn't, doesn't anthropomorphize so well. You know, they got wings. We, we don't have wings. But when, you, when you're playing with them and feeding them, you know, you, you see the soul behind the eye and you, you have a real interaction with the, with the being and it's really special. Yeah. And I would imagine also just from a conservation effort, right. It, it really helps make the case, right. Yes. When, when people can actually interact with them that much Definitely. in such a, you know, close, close encounter. That was just the best. Thank you so much for joining us this week on Bird Nerd. Huge shout out to the Philadelphia Zoo. Yes. Thank you so much for uh, introducing us to Ian and basically opening up your doors and letting us hang out for a whole afternoon. It was uh, truly a gift, and I hope, uh, I hope our listeners can take a little piece of Ian with them, home with them, and learn a little bit and hopefully visit the zoo soon. Yeah, definitely. Check out the penguin exhibit. Yeah, the new penguin exhibit is fun. Very fun. Yeah. Never seen... Uh, animals that excited about water (laughs) (laughs) it's just like a joy exhibit it's like you like just happiness pouring out of there that's right yeah it's it's something that i feel like a lot of people kind of dismiss zoos as these you know prisons for animals but check that out you're gonna you're gonna change your mind absolutely and the behind the scenes conservation efforts that are going on with the team uh, at the Philadelphia Zoo is really uh, impressive and exciting to witness and makes experiencing the zoo uh, all the more enjoyable because I know that when I see a bird or I see another animal in its enclosure, I know the story uh, and I know the people who are taking care of it from its infancy uh, in, into its adult life and it's a big investment of uh, knowledge and refinement that's going on um, generation after generation. Um, I can hear the gravitas in Ian's voice when he mentions his predecessors, and he really wants to do right by them and the legacy of the Philadelphia Zoo. And he's as passionate about that as he is passionate about saving these species. Yeah. Oh, I got teary-eyed a little bit there. Thanks, man. So visit the Philadelphia Zoo today, uh, or tomorrow, or the next day. Uh, Visit philadelphiazoo.org to find out more about their exciting programs and exhibits. Philadelphia's first zoo? America's first zoo. Whoa. America's first zoo. America's first zoo. Here in Philadelphia, we are surrounded by treasures. God bless you. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks, Dave. Later.